It's good to be back with you. We were away last week, so um, I understand we had a wonderful time in the Word and hearing more about uh, Josh and Danielle and their story and how the Lord has led them and, and uh, sharing with that from the Word. And I think some of the things that Josh talked about in terms of the uh, realities of our day and even the... Good, I'm afraid I'm going to run into that. Uh, the realities of our day and the tensions of leadership, and it's almost like there is a competition of faith. Where will your faith be in? There is the, there is, uh, the tendency today, it seems increasing in our culture, of our confidence trusted in those who are leaders, rulers, governing authorities. And it's a, it's a confidence that maybe even... Um, contends against or is an alternative to faith in the Lord. Uh, we, we live in a society that has a historic faith that we, we, in a sense, run on the fumes of the Reformation still, that there is a continuing influence in this culture, though rapidly fading in the last generation or two. Uh, but uh, that America has been, quote, known as a Christian nation, which has never uh, fully been true, but certainly uh, uh, early on a very influential part of our culture. And uh, yet, as we come to Mark chapter 6, there's something that goes on in this chapter that, that I think provides a very, a very important warning for us today. It uh, uh, calls us to a caution. Um, there's a tendency that we can have to, to trust in the outcomes, the energy, the power that resides in human politics, uh, especially when it's our politics. And then we rise up against it and champion against and fight for the other side when it's somebody else's politics that seeming to, seem to hold sway or, or have power. It's as if our confidence is there that human politics is actually what's going to determine the outcomes. It's true within our country. It's true on the world stage. It's why news sites get lots of clicks. And Mark chapter 6 addresses this. The, the neat thing about the Gospel of Mark, and our purpose in studying, our purpose in walking through the Gospel of Mark has been that we would know and follow Jesus, that we would know something more deeply. Our purpose in this series is not to understand every nuance and bit and piece within the Gospel of Mark. There's so much there. But our purpose is to, chapter by chapter, week by week, what here can I know about Jesus? How then would I follow him in light of that? In chapter 6, Mark shows us something. Mark is unique in, in how quickly his storyline moves. From episode to episode, it's almost like he hurries along. Immediately, in fact, is one of his favorite words. And yet, this chapter 6 shows us something else about not only in what he chooses to include in the details that are there, but how he puts the story together. How he includes these multiple parts in this story. And weaves that together into a whole that contains something of its own, not merely in what's said, but in how it's constructed. It's a masterful story. Let me give you an overview of the chapter to show you. You've heard me talk about a Markin sandwich, right? Where there's this piece that parallels that piece and, there's, and the meat is in the middle. So you've got the two brackets on either side that frame something important. Well, if Mark does that a lot, he likes Markin sandwiches. Some, it, it's called a chiastic construction. Well, Mark chapter 6 is more like a Markin deli sandwich, okay? You've got multiple layers stacking together. 
pointing us toward what happens in the middle. Those multiple layers start out, Jesus and his disciples return to Nazareth. And when they get to Nazareth, Jesus is not known by his own. His own people, the own town where he was raised, he's not known to them, although they think they know him well. In fact, they know him too well. They say, is this the one? This Jesus is the one that everybody's been getting so excited about? Well, we know him. He's, he's, he's the carpenter. And we know his family. We know his mother. We know his brothers. We even know his sisters. What is all the fuss about, about him? You see, they think they already know Jesus. And because of what they think they already know, they do not see him as he really is. Then Jesus then sends the disciples out. It's not enough that, that, that his own don't believe him. Now he's going to send the disciples out. And he gives them instruction, and the disciples are sent. And then we come to Herod. Herod hears what the disciples have said, and Herod, there's a discussion about who does Herod think that Jesus is. And that leads into this story about the execution of John the Baptist and this banquet that Herod has. Well, the banquet that Herod is hosting is contrasted against another banquet. This is not at a palace. This is a, think of it more like a picnic in the park. This is a simpler affair where Jesus feeds, oh, roughly 5,000 men plus a whole bunch of women and children. So the multitude gather there. There's Really, it's a tale of two banquets. And then from there, the disciples are sent again, paralleling the first sending. And then Jesus comes to his own again. This time, it's his own disciples on the sea, and they don't know him. He comes to his own in Nazareth and in the boat, and they don't know him as he truly is. The disciples are sent out to speak of him. They are sent um, so that he can dismiss the multitudes. Those two sending of the disciples set up the centerpieces, which are Herod's banquet and Jesus' banquet. It's a tale of two banquets. In the tale of two banquets, we're contrasting two kings, a, a pretender and the true. And we're exposed to the differences between them. And those differences are supposed to subtly remind this church that, that Mark is writing to, in the center of earthly power, Christians residing in Rome itself, the most powerful of places on earth, the seat of the emperor, and his cult of emperor worship that reaches all through the empire. And don't do anything to rock the Roman boat. And yet they will. In fact, they have turned the world upside down and they've started to gain attention because of it. They have started to gain and the church, Christians, are going to become the scapegoat to things that are going on. In fact, trouble that the emperor causes in Rome, basically burning down the city, oops, is then blamed upon the Christians. That's their fault. They must have done that. A convenient scapegoat. Get rid of the opposition, a, a, an alternative um, place of confidence, as well as to protect those in, in rulership, leadership. When they, in these tensions that fit in that day, and I think they fit in ours, we also live in a day where more and more there's a great confidence, almost a, a, a faith confidence in governing authorities. Now, I'm not speaking against the governing authorities. We need governing authorities. The, the, without governing authority, there would be chaos and anarchy. 
And yet, we need to be careful where we look to concerning our trust. Where is our true confidence? Where is our faith? Is it in kings or rulers or governors or administrations or political parties and theories? Or is ultimately our confidence going to reside in our Lord? And we tend to think, well, yes, but that faith concerns another world. That concerns an eternal future. At the same time, there's a politically and social reality of our day that we have to cope with and deal with. And we do. But we're warned here in Mark chapter 6 of whom will I fear? Who will I trust? Where will my confidence rest? That's the point, I think, of Mark chapter 6. So what I want to do is I want to move to the center of the chapter, and I want to read the description of those two episodes, those center episodes, the tale of two banquets. We'll begin then in um, Mark chapter 6, And I'll start with verse 14. King Herod heard of it, the preaching of Jesus by the disciples. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That got Herod's attention. That's why these miracles are at work in him. But others say he's Elijah. Others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Now, Herod would be especially concerned about that. You're about to find out why. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had now married her. For when John the Baptist had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. Apparently Herodias didn't like the way that John was talking about their marriage. But she couldn't do anything about it, for Herod feared John, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. He kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came for Herodias. When Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and his military commanders and the leading men of Galilee, for when Herod's daughters, Herodias' daughter, excuse me, she was not Herod's daughter. She was the daughter of the wife he has taken from his brother. He is his, she is his half-brother's daughter. So Herodias' daughter came in when he has this banquet for all the nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And Herodias' daughter came in and danced and she pleased Herod and his guests. She came in and danced. Think Madonna or Miley Cyrus, okay? That kind of dancing. And she came in and danced, and she pleased Herod, and she pleased his guests, and everybody enjoyed the entertainment. And so Herod says, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask, I will give up to half my kingdom. Interesting, that's the same line that Xerxes The Persian king uses to Esther when Haman's evil plot is about to be uncovered. Whatever you ask, half my kingdom. And she went out and she said to her mother, her mother Herodias is not even in the room. You see, in that royal banquet room were only the men, only the nobles, but they brought in this young lady to dance for them in their drunken revelry. 
And her mother says to her, the head of John the Baptist, that's what you ask for. She came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. There's going to be the centerpiece at the table of this wonderful royal birthday banquet. This would, this ought to be a horror story. Not an episode in the gospel, but here we are. I want you to deliver me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Oh, what have I done? What have I said? Because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. What are they going to think of me? And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison. And he brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And her disciples, when the disciples heard John's disciples, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The most honorable people in the story are John's disciples who are willing to risk the wrath of Herod in order to give John's body a burial. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that had been done and taught. Now we, we shift back. Meanwhile, back in Galilee, you see all of this is happening in a place called Machairus. That's the picture that's on the front of your, of your bulletin. Herod's banquet was at this fortress palace that's in the wilderness. It's on the east side of the Dead Sea. It's in a strategic place. From that side, on the east side of the Jordan, the east of the Dead Sea, you could see, Herod built this as a fortress, where he could see signals given from any of his other fortresses, including Jerusalem, including the Herodium, which was near Bethlehem, including his palace at Jericho, and even his fortress down at Masada. Machairus was the one place that signals given from any of those other places could be seen. It was a very strategic fortress for Herod the Great. Now it's also the southernmost fortress on the east side of Herod the Great's son, Antipas, who we're dealing with here. It's his southern fort coming up against the, error, the, the, the territory of his rival, his rival whom he'd made peace with when he, when he um, married King Aretas' of the Nabataeans. You've heard of the rock city Petra? That King Aretas. And he marries his daughter. But now he goes to Rome and he, he meets this Herodias his brother's wife, who has a thing for him. You see, because Herodias is married to another one of Herod's sons, Herod the Great's sons, but this is a son who didn't inherit any rulership. He's not in charge of anything. All he's got is an apartment and a trust fund in Rome. He doesn't rule anything. Herodias has plans for herself. She wants an upgrade. If she's going to be in the Herod family, and she is because she's one of them, she wants an upgrade, and so she seduces Antipas, and she <clears throat> convinces him that he wants her, and he does. But he's going to have to divorce his wife before she will come and join him in Galilee. Word gets back to Antipas's wife. She knows that he's about to kick her to the curb. And so she says, honey, Herod, honey, could I, could I go down to the palace there at, 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 at Machairus? I just need a little desert time. So that was her escape. And once she's there, it's a short distance for her father's generals to rescue her and bring her back to her father down there further south. And he hears the dirty deed. He hears how Herod has rejected and shamed his daughter 
for this Herodias. And John the Baptist is running around making the whole scandal public, confronting Herod out in the open. And if the one thing people of great power hate, it's being confronted about their sin and their evil out in the open. So that's what's going on. That's some of the background. Herodias is a piece of work. She's looking for an upgrade. Later, you know how Herod Antipas, how his reign, so to speak, is going to end in A.D. 39? A few years later? Because Herodias wants an upgrade too. She wants Herod to officially be called king. And she convinces Herod. Herod says, no, no, let it be, let it go. But she convinces him to send word and to go to Caesar and make make his appeal that if his nephew can be called king, then he should be king. See, Herod was a tetrarch. He's a ruler of a fourth. He was never called king like his father. He's called king in this story, however, because this pretender king who would be king, who his wife wants him to be king, all the social dynamics here of a great movie, a thriller, a horror thriller, soap opera. That's kind of what it is. All of those elements together, that's what's going on. And now Herod's having a birthday party. How nice. Meanwhile, let's leave the birthday party for a moment. Let's look at the other banquet. The disciples return to Jesus. They tell him everything that's been done and taught. And quickly the scene moves along. We don't even hear about that. He said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. He wants to take them off on a, on a, on a wilderness retreat where they can be alone and they can debrief what has happened. So they get in the boat and they go along the shore, traveling to a new place and away from the crowds. But as they went away, now many saw them going, verse 33, and recognized them. And and they ran there on foot in all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when they went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion upon them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Sounds almost Psalm 23-ish, doesn't it? The Lord is my shepherd. Hold on to that thought. And so as he saw them like sheep without a shepherd, he began to teach them many things. What's the first thing he does then? He gives them God's truth. He gives them God's word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so he gathers, instead of a, of, of a disciple's retreat, he, he teaches these multitudes who have gathered. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. The hour is late. Now send them away to go to the surrounding countryside and villages and stores and, and the, and the 7-Elevens and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. They said to him, well, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread? Do you know what that's going to cost? Give it to them? And he said to them, Well, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five loaves and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds, by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing, and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full. Each of the disciples had a basket of leftovers. They each had a box to take some back home. I can't eat it all. full of broken pieces of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were 
thousand men. The other gospel says, along with women and children. There was a huge, unnumbered multitude. 5,000 is just the beginning of it, okay? The scope of what has happened here. Those are the two banquets. Now, we're supposed to contrast these two. One with a pretender king and one with the servant of the Lord who actually is king. Let's, let's look at some of the contrast between the two. Herod parties like the king he is not. Jesus serves unlike the king that he truly is. There's a fortress palace facing Aretas, and Herod and Aretas are about to go to war. That's what's going on here. That's why Herod has gathered his nobles and his generals and the important people of Galilee, because he wants everybody on board for this campaign that he's going to have to wage because of his own foolish infidelity. Galilee is going to war because of Herod's foolish choices. And he's got to rally because they could easily say, no, <laughs> your personal trouble here with Aretas is no business of ours. We're not going into battle over this. This is your foolishness. And Herod just loses his place and the Roman Empire moves on. That's what Herod's now trying to prevent. So he throws a big party. He throws a big banquet. And Herodias sees this as her opportunity. You see, Herod is dependent on his followers fearing him, respecting him. Jesus is not dependent on his followers. Jesus, rather, is building his followers' faith. I told you, to, I told you that background about Herod's marriage, and now Herod is doubling down, and he's trying to project strength, and by brutality, he's willing to go along even with Herodias' demand, because what? If he doesn't, if he goes back on his word, that's going to be weakness to all of these. They said, well, yeah, you spoke tough words to Aretas too, but when he comes to battle against you, you're going to back down. You're going to leave us hanging. You see, if he doesn't follow through now, if he doesn't stick to what he said, if his word will not be true, these guys won't follow him anymore, and Herod will be done. So Herod has been trapped by Herodias. He's been manipulated into this. That, that even while, while um, he's not in charge of his own banquet. You see, Herodias is pulling the strings. But Jesus is in charge as the Lord who himself provides manna in the wilderness for his people. You see, one banquet's going on at a palace fortress. The other is going on out in an open field. Jesus has them sit down on the dry grass. or Not the dry grass, sorry, the green grass grass. Why is that? Do you ever wonder? Because Mark's abbreviated. Mark doesn't just add extra fluff into the story. He doesn't just throw in color commentary. Why does he include that? Do you ever wonder? Why do they sit on the green grass? Is that so we'll know what, that this must be springtime? Or maybe like Psalm 23. He makes me to lie down in what? Green pastures. There's something intentional going on here, but it's bigger than Psalm 23. Turn with me in your Bible to Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel chapter 34. Where is it? There's Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 34. I gave you this reference in your 
in, in, in your notes in the back of the bulletin as well, so you can find it later. I'm going to read just some of the highlights of this section. But here's the Lord's indictment th- through his prophet at the time of the Babylonian captivity. And this has happened because God is judging the rulers of Israel. Those rulers are shepherds of Israel, the political and priestly leadership who have not been faithful to the Lord and thus to their calling as leaders and thus to the people whom they're supposed to lead. Listen to what the Lord says to these leaders, how he holds them accountable. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not the shepherds feed the sheep? But the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought with force and harshness, you have ruled them. So, verse 5, they were scattered because there was no shepherd. How did Jesus see the multitudes? He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. We're supposed to think of Ezekiel 34 When we read Mark 6, look down at verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them. In verse 13, I will feed them on the mountains of Israel. They shall lie down in good grazing land. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy. I will feed them justice. This is the Lord's indictment against those wicked rulers who have abused and mistreated and used the sheep to feed themselves instead of caring for and feeding the flock whom God had put into their charge. That's Herod. That's the political and the spiritual rulers of the day over Israel, both prior to the Babylonian captivity and now in the first century in this tale of two banquets. Herod hosts a banquet of death, John's head on a platter feeding his own ego and need for power on the life of God's righteous prophet. Jesus, in contrast, is the bread of life. Jesus, in contrast, is the good shepherd who he himself will lay down his life for the sheep. Do you see the difference? Do you see the contrast? And do you see how in that day and Maybe even in ours, political leadership must look out for itself first. That's what it does. Our human leaders will do that. Why? Because in our fallenness, aside from the Lord's gracious working, aside from, as Jim said, the the triumph of his grace, we will serve self. Capitalism is built on it. Capitalism functions because it assumes that people are going to serve their own interests. They're going to work for their own benefit and their own gain. And so it's not surprising. We shouldn't be surprised that we see that within our leaders. It should be rather the surprise when we see something different. 
And we see somebody who in a position of authority or leadership still would give themselves for the needs of others and would choose to do what's right even when it costs them. You see that on occasion. And, 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 and we need to as well, as we participate as a society and community, we, we need to applaud that and we need to encourage that when we see it. But the reality is there's a choice that we have between the brutality of human politics and following the shepherd king, following the servant king, following the one who is, in fact, our good shepherd. Listen to how Jesus interprets the feeding of the 5,000. It's not just about a need for lunch. It's much more than that. Just after the the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6, Jesus interprets it for the people the next day. In verse 27, he says, Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Okay, the work of God. That's what you want us to do. Well, what is it? What should we do? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom God has sent. You see, we are not saved by our own works. We are not made in right relationship with God by our own works. The only work that we are to do is believe God concerning his Son whom he sent for us. That's what Jesus says right here. The work of God is to believe in the one whom God has sent. It's to say simply in prayer, God, I believe you concerning Jesus who died in my place for my guilt to bring me back into right relationship with you. That's what it is to believe God concerning his son whom he sent for us. So they said to him, then what sign do you do? This is the day after the feeding of the 5,000. What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work will you perform? You know what they're angling for? They're angling for another lunch. Who says there's no such thing? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, that is as written. He gave them bread from heaven. What are you going to give us today? It's like, Jesus, what have you done for me lately? Like today. Jesus then said to them in verse 32, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, then give us this bread always, still looking for lunch. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, believes on me, shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. They are talking about their stomachs. Jesus is talking about their spiritual need. That's how he interprets this feeding of the 5,000, that he himself has come. He is the bread. He is their need. He is that which they long for and hunger for. And God has provided for them in Jesus. Herod seems to serve the needs of the people, but is actually serving his own needs in the process. Jesus has come as the good shepherd to give his life for the sheep as the bread of life to give life to those who believe in him. Even the disciples in the story, the disciples 
will be told later, apart from me, you can do nothing. So soon after seeing God work through them, so soon after being used to teach and to, to pray for people and they're healed and to pray for people and demons are removed and cast out. And yet so soon they return to their own ability. What can we do? Their eyes on their circumstances rather than on their Lord, rather than on their God. Well, we have circumstances. We have needs. We have situations. What do you need? Or what do you expect and who do you expect it from? Let's talk about what's current today. Justice and peace. We need justice and peace within our society, right? I was at, at the airport at a coffee shop and, and I bought a coffee from a guy who was wearing a mask and Everybody in the airport is wearing masks. It's a lot of fun. And uh, on the mask it said, no justice, no peace. I think the statement is meant to be understood as an ultimatum. I took it as a statement of reality. There is no justice and there is no peace. That's right. You know, I've got a new statement we should put. I, I suggested Steve Stout could put this on, one, on, on a t-shirt. We could, walk, we, we, we could get these t-shirts from them. Do you know what I think it ought to say? No injustice, no peace. What do you mean? That's weird, Bob. It's bound to start conversations, right? L looking at the reaction on your faces, I know. It's bound to start conversations. And underneath it in smaller print, you say, He died for us, the just for the unjust. Except for the injustice of Jesus dying in my place, of Jesus the innocent one dying for my guilt and my sin, there would be no way for me to have peace with God. What a great conversation starter, right? Go get your t-shirts, talk to Steve Stout. No injustice, no peace. I dare you. Yeah, Bob, it might start more than a conversation. All right, but we, there's this longing for peace and justice, yet what do we mean by that? And what does that look like? And where does it come from? Who does it come from? We have a need for identity, for significance, for purpose and meaning. What am I for? Where can that come from except from the one who made us, created us, formed us to be in relationship with him? You have a need for food and shelter. Oh, for food and shelter and with this be content. Well, food and shelter with air conditioning today, right? But uh, we really want more than that, don't we? Don't I see what others have and want that too? Is that just me or do you wrestle with that too? That's the issue of our day. It's called inequity. That somebody else has something I don't, and I should have that too. What about me? When's my turn? It used to be called coveting to see what somebody else had. You know, I don't think Jesus saw what Herod had and wanted any of it. You know, in fact, I know that's true because Jesus showed it to, or rather Satan showed it to Jesus, didn't he? He showed him all those kingdoms. He said, you could have all of this. Jesus said, I'm not interested in your terms. Not at all. We need medical care and coverage that will keep me alive, right? And we, where do we look for that? 
Where do I look for what's going to keep me alive? I've got news for you. It won't. You have a terminal condition. It's called mortality. I have it too. And unless the Lord comes sooner, we will die. That is the end. We are like Hezekiah, merely begging for a few more years. But our times are in his hands. They can be extended. I'm amazed at what we're able to do medically today as humans. And yet, I can testify that this feeble flesh is falling apart. And it will fail. And you know it too. You can feel it, can't you? Yeah? Yeah. Where do we look for that life from? If government can't keep us alive, then who can? If they can't give us peace, who can? Well, he is our peace. He's the one who gives us peace with God. He is the one that gives us a peace from God that passes all understanding. None of us actually really wants justice. We maybe want justice for other people. We don't want justice for ourselves, not with what we've done. No. For ourselves, mercy, grace, forgiveness, tolerance, a little room. For others, yeah, where's a cop when you need him? But what if God is less concerned? What, what we really want instead of justice, we want things to go more our way. Isn't that true? I want, I want it to go more my way. But what if God is not concerned about it going more your way? What if that's not his agenda at all? What if God's agenda is more about you knowing his way? And his way is out there in a field with thousands of his friends rather than in the palace, in the party. You know, Herod is like the weak, elite political leaders of our day. They need to play games that keep a constituency in place among competing loyalties. Can we look to these political Herods then to right the wrongs that continue in our societies? These Herods don't have the compass, nor the direction, nor the ability to get us there. They can't correct it. Political Herods, both then and now, are dependent on those they lead, on those whom they are desperately trying to stay ahead of. That's why you have politicians who will say stupid things like, well, personally, I don't believe in that at all, but I believe that everybody should have the free right to choose, so I'll support it. And they will support something, allow something, that they would consider to be an anathema. You say, well, we don't have anybody that's, that's de- delivering John the Baptist's head on a plate. No, they're ripping apart children within their mother's wombs. But what if the powerful fortresses and the fortress forces within our governmental structures all around the world, what if they are not as strong as they appear to be? What if it's all a facade? What if it's all a house of cards? What if we are actually at sea in a chaotic world where no one is really in charge like they think we are and we cannot keep ourselves from sinking? We cannot get ourselves to where we need to be. The winds are against us and we do not have any real power against it. And what if there God comes to us In our weak place. That's how the chapter ends, isn't it? Jesus sends the crowds away, and Jesus is up on the mountain praying, and Jesus sees his own 
in a ship, tossed at sea, powerless, driven by the storm, far from their destination. In fact, they're going this way, and they're driven out into the middle of the sea. There's no help. There's nothing they can do for themselves in the process. And what if God provides what we do need but cannot meet for ourselves? What if our expectations for what God should do are actually wrong and maybe a simple lunch in the field is far better than an exclusive banquet could ever be? What if, what if I don't need to explain to God, don't you know how much that's going to cost? What if he knows his purposes are actually going to cost a whole lot more than we could imagine and he's ready to pay it? What if he can multiply, actually, little into abundance? What if he can tread upon a storm or chaos and actually bring us to his intended destination? What if the winds or forces against you are actually God's means of you seeing him? You know, John 6 closes with that episode on the sea. When we're a little perplexed, I'm still in John 6 instead of Mark 6. I was a little perplexed. And so they're in the boat and they're, 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 they're making headway painfully. The wind is against them and the fourth watch of the night he comes to them walking on the sea and he meant to pass them by. Like the green grass. Did that phrase trouble you? Why would he pass them by? He saw them. He's let them go all night. And now he's going to come walking on the water. Now as only God can, according to the psalmist, he's going to tread upon the waves, but he's going to pass them by. You know, there you are in your trouble, and here is God, and God just moving along. He's got his thing to do, got his place to go. Saw you there. Yeah, hope that works. And he passes by. Is that what's going on here? No. We read passes by. It's, a, it's, it's, it's unfortunate in, in the English because God, when he hid Moses in the cleft of the rock, and then God passed by to show himself to Moses. When Elijah is in the cave there at Mount Horeb, and God in his glory passed by to show himself of who he really was because with neither Moses nor Elijah nor these twelve at sea, God is not done with you yet. And what you need to keep going in his direction is to see more of him. To have our eyes on him and who he really is instead of having our eyes on the Herods of our day. Of having any confidence in the brutality of human politics instead of following our shepherd king, the servant king, the one in whom our confidence can only be. What if the winds, the circumstances against you are actually God's intention for there you to see him? Our problem is sometimes we're a little closer to Nazareth, aren't we? Sometimes what we think we know about Jesus gets in the way of what is really true about him and his call on us. What we believe or choose to believe about what it means to follow him gets in the way of actually following him. 
of denying myself, of taking my, up my cross and following Jesus. We get used to how power works in the world, and we assume God will work that way too. Let me give you a few examples. What if? What, what do you think matters more? What happens at the UN and the General Assembly or maybe in the Security Council and who votes how? Or what happens within small churches scattered among those nations represented? What do you think ultimately matters more? What do you think matters more? The stock market's current direction or what you choose to do today or tomorrow with what's in your wallet? What do you think matters more? What matters more? What some senator says about gender identity or what you are able to say to a middle school student who is confused about their own identity and is getting intense pressures from various sides? What do you think matters more? What matters more in God's eternal plan? Who's the prime minister of Israel or how this government's administration supports that one? Or you telling a co-worker, a friend, a neighbor of how one can have eternal life in Jesus. Do we have more confidence in kings and rulers, in fortresses and palaces then God's shepherd servant and his friends in a field. Hear Jesus' words again out of John chapter 6. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom God has sent. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, shall not hunger. Whoever believes in Jesus shall never thirst. Do you believe it? Will we go in that direction or will we pursue those other things around us that cannot, cannot satisfy? Let's pray. Father, please direct our eyes back in the right direction. Lord, please put our, put our sight back on your Son. Lord, easily we are caught up in the entanglements, in the efforts, in the striving around us. Lord, scared people around us will flounder after some seeming solution. But Lord, we have seen your truth. And we need not flounder, we need not fear. We have seen your son Jesus. We have seen the Lord of glory who like the good shepherd laid himself down. Oh Father, you have said that whoever believes in him will never thirst. Oh, Father, we admit that even though we've believed in Jesus as our Savior, there are times when we hunger and thirst for something. Lord, would you satisfy us in knowing and following Jesus?
Would you give us the courage, Lord, to step into whatever that next simple obedience is in following you, your will. Lord, that where he leads, we, in fact, will follow. Father, give us the courage for that. Set our eyes not on the powers of this day, but your power always. In Jesus' name, amen.